Welcome to Health Cetera's podcast. In November of 2021, New York Governor Kathy Hochul enacted a statewide disaster emergency declaration at the start of the outbreak of a highly transmissible Omicron coronavirus variant in an effort to better support patients and hospital staff. Most notably, the declaration allowed for out-of-state nurses to begin working in the state of New York without waiting the weeks or months typically required to acquire proper licensure. This was Holtzel's attempt to remedy the statewide and nationwide nursing shortage that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Since Governor Holchel's emergency declaration enactment in 2021, she has issued several extensions to the declaration, with the most recent extension upholding New York's state of disaster emergency through July 14, 2022. On this podcast, registered nurse Diana Mason hosts Dr. Nicolette Fiore Lopez, Chief Nurse Officer for St. Charles Hospital in Port Jefferson, New York, and current president of the New York Organization of Nurse Executives and Leaders, along with Dr. Kate Valson, president-elect of the New York Organization of Nurse Executives and Leaders and director of adult critical care nursing at University of Rochester Medical Center. At the time of this podcast's first airing, New York Governor Kathy Hochul had just issued the first extension of the statewide disaster emergency declaration. Dr. Diana Mason, Dr. Nicolette Fiore Lopez, and Dr. Kate Valson discuss why Governor Hochul issued this extension and what changes New York's healthcare providers and patients can expect to see. This podcast first aired on Health Cetera in the Catskills on WIOX Radio on December 1st, 2021. A few days ago, Governor Kathy Hochul extended a statewide disaster emergency declaration until December 26th. And here to talk with us about this action are first Dr. Nicolette Fiore Lopez, the Chief Nurse Officer for St. Charles Hospital in Port Jefferson, New York, and President of the American Organization of Nurse Executives. Nikki, thank you so much for coming back to Health Center on the in the Catskills. Thank you for having me. And we also have the president-elect of the New York Organization of Nurse Executives and Leaders. Um, Dr. Kate Valson is the director of ambulatory critical care nursing at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Thank you, Kate, for joining me today on Health Cetera in the Catskills. Thanks so much for the invitation. And and uh, I'm I'm really delighted to have you because you, you you have some feeling for what's going on upstate and Nikki's downstate. So we'll get a, a perspective from across the state from the two of you. So as I said a few days ago, the governor extended this. Uh, statewide disaster emergency declaration until December 26. What is this emergency declaration and what does it mean? Nikki, let's start with you. So through the executive order that was signed by Governor Hochul, the Department of Health will be allowed to limit non-essential, non-urgent procedures in hospitals or systems at limited capacity. And limited capacity is defined as less than 10% staffed bed capacity. This is to protect our health and all the health of our patients in hospitals and those that may be seeking health care services. 
So uh, let me make sure I understand this correctly, that you can reduce your bed capacity by 10% during this time. No. no. We, what we need to do is that we need to, if we have less than 10% uh, of our beds available, we, we would then need to stop any elective procedure. Ah, uh, I see. I see. Okay. So most hospitals are within systems in New York State. And they do something called load balancing, where um, they seek to um, transfer patients uh, within their systems in order to make sure that each hospital has enough capacity to deal with the next patient walking in the door, whether or not that patient is affected by the COVID pandemic. So, Kate Valchin, why why do you... think she did this? What's going on that, uh, and I'm assuming that, um, well, I shouldn't assume, is this something that you support? And if so, why? Why would she do this? I think Governor Hochul is doing this because she sees that in some parts of the state, COVID numbers and COVID transmission is increasing. And when she looks at what happened last year at this time, we experienced a very significant spike in COVID cases. We're in a much better space right now because of vaccination and vaccination preventing serious or critical illness. However, there's still a lot of COVID in our communities, particular, particularly in our upstate communities, not so much downstate where Nikki is. And so I think Governor Hochul is looking in, um, looking at the past and trying to learn from our experiences, although um, we're in a slightly different space and wanting to protect our communities and make sure that we have the capacity to take care of patients that that need our care, uh, whatever kind of patients that there are that they are. Um, the other thing that this executive order did was extend some things that are helping us with our capacity management. So right now there's an executive order in place that waives um, nurses and other healthcare providers from outside of state from going through um, and getting their nursing licensure or other licensure in New York State before they can practice. So that's helping us to bring healthcare workers from other parts of the country to work. Um, and without that emergency declaration, we would not be able to do that so quickly. And she's also expanded some of the emergency documentation that's in place, as well as waived some, some types of prior authorization. So she's doing what she can to help things keep moving smoothly um, in our healthcare uh, industry right now, which is really very stressed. And uh, for the public who may be thinking, well, you're going to have nurses working here coming from another state that our state hasn't approved, I think we need to point out that states are pretty consistent with what they look for in terms of credentialing nurses. Would you agree with that, um, uh, Kate? Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, in fact, we all take the same exam at the end of mm-hmm. our nursing school um, in order to become to become a nurse. And then it's a combination of passing that examination, which is a national test, as well as whatever things that your state wants you to do um, that help you to earn your license. So we, you know, we have brought nurses in through travel agencies and through other methods that um, are in the process of getting their license. It's not that they're not getting their nursing license. We're just not having to wait the weeks or months that it might take for that paperwork to be done. They can start working right away. And I also want to ask you about the nursing shortage because we've heard about the shortages of health care workers since COVID, that the stress of it has really caused some people to decide, mm, I'm not doing this anymore, or I'm taking a hiatus. Are you experiencing that in the Rochester region? 
We are seeing that. We have seen um, many of the nurses in our workforce who are planning to retire in the next couple of years retire early. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen um, nurses shifting around. Um, after each wave of the pandemic, we've seen nurses move within our institution to a different specialty. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of movement um, and definitely have many open positions. And, and Nikki, downstate, you're seeing the same thing in terms of needing to figure out how to keep staffing where you need it? Yes, yes we are. And as, and as a result, we are looking at some creative ways of, of keeping our staff and also attracting more staff. I think every hospital and every health system are looking at more and more ways to do that, be it financially or through other incentives. In addition, many hospitals are, are partnering with their academic colleagues to bring in students in, in capacities such as assistants and, and in other ways in order to um, help the nurses that are the incumbent nurses to take care of the staff that we have, uh, the patients that we have, excuse me. Yeah. Um, so the we've got this new variant that has not shown up here yet, the Omicron variant, um, which we're still waiting to, there's some sense that it may be uh, as transmissible as the Delta variant, uh, maybe a little bit more so, but they're, they're not sure whether it's really creating more serious illness than Delta variant. So knowing that this is out there, and, and, and we know it's going to come here, um, even if it hasn't been detected yet, um, it seems like the governor's probably, uh, you know, December 26 was a short period of time. Um, do you have any sense about why the, the state of emergency wasn't longer, and do you expect her to extend it? So uh, for statutory regulations, the governor can only extend emergency orders ah. for, for, for 30 days. Mm. So each month those orders are reviewed and extended. And, in fact, the orders that <clears throat> Kate referenced earlier regarding uh, practitioners coming into our state and other licensed personnel working without state licensure, uh, those, were, those have been in place since about the beginning of the pandemic mm -hmm. in order to help us staff, and they've been renewed just about every month. So, Kate Vallison, you're you are director of adult critical care nursing. So you're you're overseeing the critical care units. You're you're overseeing those ICU beds that were, I assume, pretty filled with COVID patients at one point. Um, how, can you describe um, what the situation was at its worst and how it is now for you? I'm sure. Yeah, certainly. I. I would say well, uh, for us, our, um, in Upstate, our second wave, which was much greater than the first initial wave. So we experienced um, many more COVID patients last fall and winter. Um, in fact, at one point, um, I take care of or help take care of patients in about 120 adult critical care beds over multiple units and multiple specialties. Um, at one point, we had actually converted four of our eight ICUs into COVID ICUs and they were full of COVID patients. Um, we converted one of our step-down units to a COVID-specific step-down unit, and they were full of COVID patients. Um, and so we really experienced this challenge of caring for COVID patients who are very sick for a very long time when they get to the ICU, and then still needing to take care of the other patients who are needing to come into the hospital as well. So as a result of that, we actually added 
um, 14 additional ICU beds to our capacity, mm. and we've had to maintain those extra ICU beds um, since we maintained them through the whole summer, and we're seeing that right now, even with those extra ICU beds open, that we still are going to have a problem um, having space for all of our patients. So we're really actively working on figuring that out. At one point, we were using part of our post-anesthesia unit, which is where patients usually go after surgery. Um, we had ICU patients there, and then we were also looking at space within our children's hospital and saying, are mm -hmm. there adult patients who are maybe on the younger side or have um, perhaps diagnoses that are familiar um, to pediatric nurses that could be cared for in that environment as well? So we, um, we experienced a significant demand for ICU beds, and we're anticipating that that same demand is going to happen again. Um, what we're seeing is that it's not just COVID patients, that we have a lot of other really sick patients in our community. I think that's been talked about in the news sometimes that um, because of the pandemic and the ways that we've experienced, um, maybe individuals aren't seeking health care as nor quickly as they normally would. And so when they get to the hospital, um, they're a little bit sicker and they're in need of our services. Um, so we're experiencing that challenge of both COVID and non-COVID. Um, our COVID patients right now in our ICU are double what they were a month ago. Um, what we saw last year was that after Halloween, there was a little bit of a upsurge, and then after Thanksgiving, a bigger one, um, and then after Christmas and New Year's, a bigger one, and they just layer on top of each other. COVID patients, many of them are in the ICU for weeks and weeks and weeks, so the Halloween patients were still there when the Thanksgiving patients came, and they were still there when some of the Christmas patients came, and so that's really what puts the pressure on is that layering of patients who are in our ICUs for weeks and weeks and weeks. When, um, if you don't have COVID, usually you're in the ICU for four or five days, maybe a week, um, depending on what your diagnosis is. And, and f compared to pre-pandemic, in terms of nurse-to-patient ratios, have, have they gotten worse for you? So we have worked really hard to maintain our nurse-to-patient ratios um, in the institution where I work. So we are still utilizing a two-to-one or a one-to-one -one nursing ratio in our ICU. That's not the choice that every institution has made. And there are um, ICUs that I, I know in the upstate area, not just in Rochester, but in other parts of the region as well, that are doing three-to-one mm -hmm. um, in their ICUs. What, what we don't have is as many helping hands. Um, because we're taking those nurses that normally would have been in a helping hands role or perhaps floating between ICUs, and they're absorbing patient assignments. So um, we are maintaining ratios, but we don't have as much help and support as we had before, which is very challenging. So one of the things, and, and, and Nikki, maybe you could comment on what you're hearing elsewhere, but uh, what, I, I heard a report a couple weeks ago about a hospital up in the up in the upstate, this upstate Catskill region, that um, actually uh, had the shortage was so bad that they were telling people going to mandatory overtime, which is horrible in my estimation. You're going to drive more staff away because it often forces nurses to choose between their jobs and their family, particularly if they have kids who come home at a certain time or what have you. And um, so mandatory overtime, as well as um, saying that you can't take a vacation, we will pay you for your vacation time. Uh, and that, it's just going to accelerate the burnout, I think. So, I, I, and I wondered, 
Why aren't you closing bids? Why aren't you shutting down and at some of your elective procedures? And I know that that's a double-edged sword because hospitals make a lot of money off of their elective procedures, elective surgeries. What, what's your sense of this situation and what the options are? Will this emergency authorization help? Some elective surgery is, a, is misunderstood. Um, elective surgery could be something like a breast lumpectomy. So whereas that's not an emergency in the long run, it can be an emergency. So when hospitals choose to delay surgeries, they have to choose wisely mm -hmm. um, and certainly follow the Department of Health mandate. However, what we're finding now is elective surgery such as I was just speaking to someone just about an hour ago who manages our joint replacement program. Many, many patients are calling and asking, is it okay? Mm -hmm. Am I going to have my surgery? Can I get in? Um, what we're seeing in the downstate area is not so much a surge in admissions yet, but what we are seeing is a surge in patients who are coming in for IV infusions of monoclonal antibodies. Uh, um, I think most of the public is aware that this is an approved FDA treatment for symptoms that do not require hospitalization, but do require some type of, of treatment. And as a result, we have actually seen a double, uh, double the number of patients coming in asking for that. So right now in my region, we have not seen a bump in hospital admissions, but we certainly have seen a bump in patients coming in asking for this type of treatment. And, and those treatments are done on an outpatient basis, aren't they? Yes. Yes, yes, yes they, they are. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. are. The infusion itself is an hour, but there's a lot of paperwork that has to occur before and after. So it does take a, it does take several more than several hours to, from beginning to completion. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why people were hopeful that this Merck pill that people could take orally would help because it, it would have good data because it would mean people wouldn't have to go and have these IV infusions of monoclonal antibodies, but could just take a pill. The reality is if you look at what the FDI advisory panel, their deliberations, there was a very good piece in Stat News on this, and it seemed and the committee was rather, uh, was very mixed about approving yes. it because of the potential for this drug to potentially have changes, make changes to the DNA that are unwanted uh, and possibly be dangerous for women who are pregnant. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the FDA does with this, even though the advisory panel uh, by a narrow margin said approved, the FDA doesn't have to do that. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. I, I want to just take the last couple minutes and talk with you both about the issue of mandated vaccinations for healthcare workers. Um, and Nikki, I think we talked. I think we talked about this uh, some weeks ago, um, and and you were doing very well with getting your people vaccinated. There, there is now a court ruling um, that uh, uh, that um, this is on hold. That the federal government ha ha this has to go through the courts, and until it goes through the courts to approve that that the federal government can mandate vaccinations uh, for COVID of all healthcare workers. Um, they they can't mandate the vaccine. So I'm, I'm wondering what impact is this hold having on 
on on you all on and and uh, I'll start with you, Nikki, because I, I I don't think it's much of an issue for you because I think you have a high rate of vaccination of your healthcare workers, don't you? Yes. So what's happened is that we're under the Department of Health mandate. So if the federal government chooses to, or the uh, courts choose to block the federal government from imposing this mandate, we are still required uh, for, New, for New York State to, to vaccinate our health care workers. So um, now a little over a week ago, we have a number of, of people. We're up to about 97% of our staff wow. are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. The other 3% are out on unpaid furlough last week. And, and this week, mm. and if they are not uh, vaccinated, receive their first vac- vaccine by this coming Monday, which would be December 6th, they will be terminated, um, which, is, which is really too bad. But because of the Department of Health mandate, this is what, what, where we're at, and it's unfortunate because um, we, as you discussed earlier, we could use every last staff member. But we are doing well. We have been able to recruit others into these positions, new graduates and the like. Um, And and I only hope that those that have chosen not to receive the vaccine for whatever reason perhaps think about it. But there's also, just of note, there are people with bona fide medical exemptions Mm -hmm. that are still working and are tested accordingly. Great. And Kate, what about at the University of Rochester and how you're doing with healthcare workers being vaccinated? Uh, I think our experience is very similar to what Nikki described. We did have some team members who who chose um, not to get vaccinated. Our internal date um, was the Monday before Thanksgiving. So um, we have, we do have some team members who are no longer working with us, but as that um, November 22nd date drew closer. There were many people who chose um, in the end to get vaccinated. Um, what we're seeing in the upstate region is that it's long-term care and home care, which have a lower vaccination rate actually than the acute care settings. And so we are seeing an impact on availability of long-term care and skilled um, facility beds for rehab. And so that is impacting our throughput through the system um, because there's beds closed in those uh, nursing facilities in our community. And I, I'm not quite sure the public, all the public, um, understands why this is so important that healthcare workers be vaccinated. Imagine going to a hospital in terrible shape. You need acute care. And you don't get admitted these days unless you um, are in really bad shape or you're having an elective procedure like a total hip replacement. So imagine going in, and particularly if you're in not good shape, and have, getting COVID from a staff member. I mean, staff, it's one of the things about staff calling in sick and hospitals that used to really um, penalize nurses and other healthcare workers who would call in sick. Um, if you're sick, you don't want to be around at people who are vulnerable. If somebody who is vulnerable gets the flu from you or gets COVID from you, they're much more likely to have really serious illness and die. So um, I wouldn't want to go into a hospital where um, I know that hospital workers um, are not vaccinated. So, well, I I know these are very challenging uh, times for both of you, and I applaud both of you for the work that you are doing and really appreciate your coming on to talk talk with us today. We've been talking with... 
Dr. Nicolette Fiore Lopez, the Chief Nurse Officer at St. Charles Hospital in Port Jefferson and President of the uh, ah, President of the New York Organization of Nurse Executives and Leaders. I think I had you as President of the American uh, Organization of Nurse Leaders, um, Nikki. So, but yeah. th- thank you, thank you, Nikki, <laughs> and also Dr. Kate Valson, who is Director of Adult Critical Care Nursing at the University of Rochester Medical Center and President-elect of the New York Organization of Nurse Executives and Leaders. Thank you both for coming on Health Center and the Catskills today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Have a great day. You've been listening to a podcast of Health Cetera in the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to Health Cetera's website and blog at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Diana Mason, Barbara Glickstein, and production assistant Kai Volsey.